I got an idea. I'll mow everybody's lawn around here, and I'm going to raise that $107 I'm short. Sounds great, Greg. Would you quit watching that dumb cartoon? You haven't heard a word I said. Sounds great, Greg. <laughs> I just had a swell talk with Mr. Dimsdale. At the recording studio? Yeah, I went over there to ask him to cut his price. I know his son, Johnny. Thanks, Pete. Boy, will you be happy I went. He cut the price! No! <laughs> then what the heck are you so excited about? I saw a great new group. They were recording in Mr. Dimsdale's studio. Congratulations. Mr. Dimsdale gave me some good advice. He said that family groups sell millions of records. Are you trying to make me feel worse than I already do? Greg, if that group I saw is going to make all that money, then we ought to make more. There are only five of them, and there's six of us Brady kids. Hey, hey, Pete, you might have something. Sure, and we'd make three times as much as the Carpenters. There's only two of them. We could call ourselves a Brady Six. It just might work. And with us recording my new great song, Pete, that's... That's a terrible idea. Huh? Well, why do you get me all charged up like this? I'm still short $107. I'll chip in all I have. So will the others. You think so? Sure. Bobby, wouldn't you? Sounds great, Greg. Thanks, Pete. I think we better get his money before the cartoon ends. The Lifers Podcast with Scott Lucas, Gabe Rodriguez, and Ben Reiser. And now, here's Scott, Gabe, and Ben. Hey, you had three nights at the Beef Kitchen. How did that go for you? Gabe, what was, Gabe you made an appearance via iPhone. Uh, yeah, it was... It was Two hours behind or whatever, I was ringing in the new year with with Ryan and Scott. And uh, what time did you end up going to sleep that night? About eleven fifty-five my time. I oh. fell asleep before the ball went down. Whatever you want to say. Uh, before the ball dropped. Actually, your yeah. ball dropped last year, didn't it? <laughs> no, but that post you made on your personal page. That said, last year was a gabe of a year of some kind. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm I'm trying to put my brain around it. Is that a compliment to me? Uh, what is? I don't understand it. Do you remember where that sprung from? That was last week's episode. Yeah, remember? Yes, but I, it was a pejorative. Was a, you said it was a pejorative. You were the one who said it. It was a verb. It was a verb in the context last week. You this said week, you can't use gabe as a verb. I did say that. So now you use it as a, what? Is that an adjective? An adjective, gabe, yeah. Gabe of a year? A gabe of a year. We're going to use the word gabe as every part of a sentence before we're done. Yeah, but when you gabe. think of 2021, right. you That's don't right. think good things. Yes, exactly. And you said it was a gabe of a year. And yeah, I do. I, I, it was the year that we started this podcast. What could be better than 2020? Oh, there we go. We're almost there. We're almost a year. But yeah, Gabe, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. You yeah, know. but then you had people agreeing with you, and I'm like, hold on a second here. This, I don't know if I can agree with this sentiment here. This might be 
crossing the line a little bit. See, the thing about it is when you say something like that and everyone goes, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Whoa. Then, you, you know, you, you realize that, you know, your name has taken on a new meeting. You, you've, you've crossed over to the lexicon. No. I feel like George in the Seinfeld episode where he wanted to be T-Bone and they made him Bobo or whatever. You mean T-Bone? <laughs> they made him Coco. Coco. As in ooh, ooh, ah, ah. <laughs> hey, am I hey. hallucinating yes. or did you spoil a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode for me last week and then said, no, no, no I'm talking about something from season eight. I thought it was from season eight. Because <laughs> then I watched <laughs> this most recent episode and I'm like, wait, I think this is the episode that's got... Is, there can't be another episode where he's in a Holocaust museum and he borrows shoes. You're like, um, I think I've seen this one before. <laughs> yeah, I really did. I was like, what the fuck? I, am I that high? What is going on right now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you legitimately thought it was an old episode when you were recounting it. Oh, yes, it was. Hey, I just got a, a, a text from Joel Cordy who we, from Chase Bliss. He yeah. says, dude, your podcast rocks. Going to have to be a regular, regular listener. So that just came through right now. Thank you, Joel. Uh, yeah, but, Joel, pr- but, promote it on your social media. We, we need to get our guests to sort of be more active in, in promoting their episodes. Joel. Yeah, that would, that would help. Uh, like, I don't think we've made any headway with the Helmet fans yet. No, I, I, tried, I, tried, I tagged Helmet, but, but I don't mm. think... I, those guys haven't really put anything out there. They've had a tough year... Ben, they've right. had sure. a gabe of a year. No, no, no. It's got to stop. I got to, I got to nip this in the bud right now. This you got to is... gabe that in the bud. <laughs> See, it works for everything. No, no. It's got to put this in the rearview mirror. Uh huh. Like, like, like twenty twenty one. Yeah. Speaking of the rearview mirror, what happened to our dog friend, the TJ Max bag? Uh, I used it for some groceries one day because in California, you got to pay for bags. You know that? Yeah. <laughs> you got to pay for bags here, too. You got to do that in Madison, too. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Only in the city of Chicago. Not in the whole state. Yeah, well, well, welcome to progressive America. Go on. So I took it, I took it one day because I was getting something and I wanted to carry the bag. Not that I didn't want to pay 10 cents for a bag. I just felt weird carrying a bag. From the store, so I brought the bag and I left it in the trunk, and it's well. The po- somewhere else. point of charging you is so you will bring your own bags. Is so, it? Yes, so that so that you know you will reuse a bag. I'd rather just carry a cucumber and a box of tissues out the store without a bag than bring my own bag. Wait, what? what? Is that something you do? A box I'll- of tissues? You walk around <laughs> with cucumbers and a box of tissues. <laughs> All right, let's. That must be a gabism. Now let's get past that and go to the part where you destroyed your dog bag. I didn't destroy the bag. I still have it. Where is it? It's somewhere in the room. I'm not going to find it right now. I want to pause the momentum of the show. Yeah, because we're killing it. Well, here's what you do. When you find your mic stand, put it in that dog bag and then set both of them up where they should be. The mic stand is gone. <laughs> I'll send you the one that I got with the same mic. All right, so is this what's been going on? The, you lost the mic stand? No, it's in the box somewhere. I got 20 boxes behind me. I'm not going to unpack them. Oh, Gabe. Crazy? Wow. So uh, not, not only has a new year started, but sober January has started for me. You don't do that, Ben, I, I see. No. No. I do. Gabe, it. Gabe, do you do sober January? 
I do sober centuries. Who the cares? last one and this one. It's boring. <laughs> well, can I dig into this for a second? I know, yeah. I, 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 Gabe, you've never had an alcoholic drink? I've never tasted alcohol enough to make me tipsy or drunk. How do you know you don't love oh, it? Oh, okay. I hate the taste of alcohol. Yeah, but that's, that's, everyone hates it at first, and then they realize, oh my God, where's this been all my life? Like when you eat dirt when you're a kid, you're thinking, oh, this sucks, but keep trying it, it'll be better later? Well, I've never ate, I've never eaten dirt. I think you have. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't there an old saying that says you eat like four pounds of dirt in your sleep by the time you're dead? You know, you, you never heard that before? I've heard people say, eat dirt, and then throw me down to the ground. You know, you know. I'm just, eat, I'm just eat, saying. Eat lead. <laughs> yeah, I, I personally look forward. By the end of December, I cannot wait for sober January to start. So I'm a big fan of it. Does and it start January 1st, like at midnight, or do you have to go to no. sleep? No, you got to go to sleep. In fact, this year, uh, it didn't start until Monday, because Saturday... We had something to do, and Sunday we had something to do. We didn't want to ruin the weekend. We and you know what? I work. I work on, on New Year's Eve. It's not half ass. Will you it's carry it through to the first couple days of February to make up for that loss? Not <laughs> if I don't want to. <laughs> no, you got to go thirty-one days. No, dude, fuck you. Thirty-one <laughs> dude, full days. I will do thirty-one full days with no drinking if you do thirty-one days of drinking. Because see, that would be. <laughs> that's the only <laughs> way that I would that I would go. Okay. I'll defer to you on this. That's You've got to go the other way. No, a it's a false equivalence. It's a 180. <laughs> no. And a, and a 180, everyone knows, is, is a perfect equivalence. At the bizarro world here, you're talking about. Ah, a 180. <laughs> if I'm sober, the opposite would be... Drunk. Drunk, Drunk yes. Okay, so that is the perfect equivalence. The anti-equivalence. So, Gabe, you've never, you've never felt all those uh, adjectives that describe people when they've had something to drink or some, they've imbibed something else. You've never been no. altered in your... I have. When I was 13 years old in my eighth grade, uh, on my way to school one day, I smoked out of a beer can some, some weed. Were they stems? I have no idea, but it was... It was I had the feeling of being high... I threw up in school and never did it again. All those years of being on the road, road managing, uh, was there a lot of peer pressure? <laughs> no, there was never any peer pressure <laughs> for Gabe to start drinking. This is the most peer pressure he's ever gotten to start drinking right now from me. No, I think you might have asked me to try a, a beer or something along the way, but I never did. But seriously, have I? No. No. I've respected this, your I've respected your lame lifestyle since I've ever since I've met you. As much as I respect you and yours. <laughs> Which is zero. <laughs> I respect you more than you respect me. And that's the truth. That. I don't but know okay, that. but never mind Scott, who of course is, you know, like your best friend and wouldn't do that to you. But what about <laughs> everyone else that you're on the road with? All the other bands and other members of local age? Man, people are f- too afraid of Gabe to are try they? to pressure him. Yeah, well, they, you know, Gabe, he seems like the guy, kind of guy who could, uh, he could blow. 
any second. He could pop off in some direction and just he gave the fuck out of the place. And <laughs> they can't. It, it, it's scary. Like, if you don't know Gabe, Gabe really um, puts off a scary vibe. That's not the first time I've been told this before, but I've never. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In fact, not just scary, but horrifying. It's never manifested itself. People that have, that have gone on the road with us for the first couple of weeks, they've told me that they're horrified when Gabe walks into the room. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. Horrified? Come on. Terrified. <laughs> Did you ever have to get tough, like, to collect the money at the end of the night and tough. things like that? Like, yeah, I'm asking you a question. No, but Scott wanted me to, he wanted me to be like Peter Grant. Whoa, whoa. To... Un- ungabe the mic a little bit. Back off Yeah, little... yeah. You're gabing that mic a little hey, too hey, hard. Hey. <laughs> he used to say, watch the movie The Song Remains the Same and be like Peter Grant, the manager from Led Zeppelin. During the cunt scene, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Where, where you know, and this is another thing about the 70s, uh, Ben. Mm-hmm. That movie's rated PG, and mm-hmm. and in that scene, when he's going after the the guy with the bootleg T-shirts, he says cunt like 10 times. Yeah. Huh? How can you get well, away with that? Well, cunt in the UK is like, you know, they teach the kids with their ABCs. Like, that's sure. not, a, not a swear. <laughs> but it's plain in the U.S. Okay, yeah. Doesn't even, they don't even bleep it uh they probably didn't even understand what he was saying well it was a great scene nonetheless but yes gabe i wanted you to be peter grant and how good of a peter grant was i not good at at all i didn't have to get tough you were more of a john paul jones than a peter grant (laughs) with the band never had to get tough with a (laughs) bouncer or a sound man or a club owner i threw somebody out of a show at brownie's yeah, but it was me. <laughs> no, there was somebody that was heckling us, and it had something to do with Joe. And I threw him out. I said, "Get this guy out of here! Get him out now!" And that night, and somebody then it... broke a window on our bus. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> could have been them. But no, with the club owners and the people like that, no, we never had to get tough. No, no, you treat people with respect. Throw in a couple of cunts here and there, you don't have a problem. Okay, but so no peer pressure to speak of, and you didn't have to go against your sweet nature. You didn't have to be the tough guy often, if, if at all. So what was it that that what were the deciding factors in you saying I've, I can't do this anymore? Was it just that you were herding cats the whole time and you were chasing after all these people who were indulging in all kinds of things and you were tired of that? Or do you remember when Wes was on the show and he said? That he, he slept all the way back from Australia in the flight back with his mouth wide open. Yeah. I remember looking at him saying, Wes, <laughs> someone's going to throw some popcorn in your mouth and you're going to choke or something. Wake up. You know, you've been sitting there for 10 hours, mouth wide open. <laughs> but he was he was so out of it. He was that tired. He just sat there. Well, tired from partying. Uh-huh. I mean, and tired from, you know, staying awake to party. Yeah, I had to wrangle everybody on right. on the plane to get them on the plane in time. It, it was pretty wild. I mean, it, up until the last minute, too much wrangling. I was a I was a babysitter, but that, I mean, it was fun. It's not like I regret doing it. It's just it was time. I turned thirty and <laughs> I want to settle down. And have you missed 
that sort of ba- the babysitting years in the in the intervening years? Do you sometimes say, oh, "I wish I was I, back chasing"? I say babysitting, but I was having a good time with everybody else. So yes, I missed it. Listen, that and, was the plan. That was the plan. <laughs> when we got on the plane, that was the plan. But you and never I, told me about. The I plan. told everybody. You I didn't. Said, tell this, me. this is how it's going to go. If, and if, and if we did the manager, it. If the manager at the time knew that this was the plan and I heard about it, he would have had my hide and said, what are you doing down there? I'm getting, I'm coming down there to crack some skulls. No, 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 no. Everybody, everybody loved it. Everybody thought it was hilarious. The inside crowd did, yes. But there was business to be done and work. And we did it. Was there any show that suffered? No. It was a time we didn't know you were going to be at the show. You remember that. Wasn't I at the show? At the last minute, you came. There you go. You Nothing came. suffered. <laughs> Nothing suffered. You did show up. A good time was had by all. <laughs> That's the story. Yeah. Yeah, man. You know what? Sometimes you got to break a couple eggs to make an omelet. Mmm, omelets. Yeah, but if you don't do it right, you'll eat the shells. Eat the what? The shells. Well, that sounds like a pretty gabed up omelet. <laughs> You're determined. <laughs> it's going to happen. No. I was watching a Diary of a Mad Housewife. And oh. they were having a, well, of course you were. They were having a big party uh, for all the for all of um, Richard Benjamin's uh, people that he wanted to be friends with, all the celebrities yeah. in New York. and. And he had it catered by this fancy caterer, and the the, the menu was going to be omelets, which I've never, I've never experienced at a nighttime party. Have you? Have either of you been to a sort of a dinner well, I, or later soiree where omelets are the main course? I had never seen Diary of a Mad Housewife, and I am in a a, a Frank Perry down a Frank Ra- Perry rabbit Frank Perry rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, we watched all of it. We watched everything we could get our hands on. I'm a uh, I'm a huge fan. I had no idea this guy even existed. You know, all these years I thought, who directed Mommy? Oh, really? Di- who directed Mommy Dearest? Some fucking hack, you know. Right. And now I can even watch Mommy Dearest. And I'm kind of like, okay, I can see some interesting things going on here. Yeah. Watch the swimmer. The swimmer blew me away. Oh, you'd never seen the swimmer? Never seen the swimmer before. I mean, I'd, I'd heard of it. It sounded interesting, but but I was like, yeah. And then. Once I saw Diary of a Mad Housewife, I'm like, give me more. And the swimmer was next. Justine was like, well, that sounds interesting. We're watching like, what the fuck is this? I know I texted you. Is that a thing? Is that a known thing that people say, oh, yeah, Patrick Bateman is sort of Richard Benjamin and Diary of a Mad Housewife? Yeah, God, I mean, that, that is by far my favorite Richard Benjamin performance. Unbelievable. Right? So and I've funny. been a huge Richard Benjamin fan my whole life. One of the first movies I remember seeing at, at the Star Trek convention that I went to in 1976 <laughs> was uh, Westworld. Westworld. And, uh, I mean, Westworld was my it. favorite movie as a yeah. kid. You know, that was yeah. everything. You remember Westworld, but, Gabe? With Kevin Costner? <laughs> <laughs> no, Yul Brenner. He gaved it. He gaved it. Yeah, oh, well, you knew that was going to happen. I thought he was going to sit over there like, who are you guys talking about? Tyler Perry? <laughs> No. <laughs> what about Love at First Bite with Richard Benjamin? Remember that one, Gabe? Yeah. Sounds familiar. I saw a dumb movie called Friends with Money 
the other night with Jennifer Aniston. It's not a dumb movie. That's a great movie. Actually, I hated it. I hated the movie. No one's yeah. going to believe that she's a maid, number one. Why? Because Maybe she didn't go to school. She didn't no, no, pay no. attention. She fucked around. She's got nothing else to do. Listen, the movie was terrible. Nobody's going to believe that she's going to clean somebody's house, get paid, have her dude over, and give him some of the money because he helped. Nobody believes this stuff. I completely, I completely believe it. Terrible movie. The great movie. The great movie. I fell asleep. Who directed that movie? Who wrote and directed that that one, Ben? Frank Perry. <laughs> Nicole. Her, other, her, her other movies are great. Uh, what's her name? Nicole Hassenpfeffer. Nicole Holland. Nicole Hassenpfeffer. Nicole Holland Center. She's great. When she she comes out with a new movie, I'm first in line. She's got some great movies. I think my favorite, Nicole. How do you say? How do you say her last name? Because I, I say it Holland Center. Holland Center. Yeah, Center. That seems right. Yeah. Lovely and Amazing. That's Lovely and Amazing favorite. is good. I like, what is it called? Enough Said with Enough Julie Louis-Dreyfus and, and James, James Gandolfini. Gandolfini. I love that movie. Uh, now, wait a minute. She's got a credit for Can You Ever Forgive Me. She didn't direct that, did she? She's a co-writer on that. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's another great movie that Gabe would probably think is stupid. No, I'll, I'll check these out. Because I wanted to like the movie, but I kept waiting for something to happen. Nothing ever did. But you just couldn't believe Jennifer Aniston did what she did. Couldn't buy it. Nothing is going to really happen in her movies. Like, it's not going to, like, nothing crazy ever happens. I just wanted something. Give me something. Nothing happened. I, I disagree. I think a lot of things happen, just like life, you know? I get her confused with the um, the woman who did uh, The Kids Are All Right. Lisa Chilodenko. Yeah, and my wife used to work with Lisa Cholodenko and so I always wait is she the one that my wife worked with oh, no, she's great too she doesn't make enough movies yeah. High Art is on uh, Criterion right now and man I remember first saying that going what is this this is great hey everybody it's Greg Corner Greg what, what are you doing <laughs> how you doing Scott I'm doing good we're over here talking about movies have uh, are, are you are you back in the theaters is movie back, club back up and going? Yes, nothing can stop me from going to the theaters. Nothing. Have you seen anything good lately? <laughs> um, not that you would like. <laughs> All right. Greg and I usually disagree about movies. Well, not- here, no, actually, we don't disagree about movies. Um, we usually, you don't like the mainstream movies where I do, but I also like the art films like you do. I just don't see them as much as you do in the theater. Well, sometimes I'll like something and like really love something. You'll be like, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> like, like something like Little Women, like which I oh love. yeah, oh yeah, I thought, yeah. I, I hated thought that, that was one. the best movie of the year. Oh, and yeah, you're like, I hate it. "Come on, you got to be kidding." Yeah. Greg, did you see? Did you see Red Rocket? <laughs> no, oh, yeah. I want to see that really bad though. Oh, you'd I love do. it. You'd yeah, love I, it. Do. I do want to see that. But it's not that I hate the movies and that you see and you like those movies because you don't like those movies either yeah you, a lot of you them I, just, get, I go and i'm like oh god you know yeah however see, i'm just i'm just disgusted that you would waste two hours watching that <laughs> shit <laughs> however i did like the new spider-man me I yeah i like the movie great yeah. movie. Yeah. I, I almost went to see it today and i was like i don't care yeah i know your skin your skin will crawl if you go in that theater for, for a marvel <laughs> movie well, I saw I saw the last Spider Man, and then I saw the the animated Spider Man before that one. Okay, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. and I liked both of them. I really did. But I was yeah, high I for think, the animated one. I think I you'll think, like this one. Too. Yeah, this one is better than the last one. I think it, it is better than the last <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, it's the best of the um, Tom Holland. Spider-Man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree with you there. Tom Holland, the director of Fright Night. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. See, I pulled a Gabe there. A smarter no. Gabe, but it was a Gabe. <laughs> Frank, Night Flight? What? He outgaved you. Do you actually to Night Flight? What, who said that? Yeah. Okay. I, I thought that's what you're talking about. All right. So, so did you DJ anywhere on New Year's Eve? Um, I did, and it was really, really slow. Um, yeah. It was probably the worst New Year's Eve I've ever seen in whatever DJing for. I mean, I guess I've been DJing now for 22 years, but um, probably DJing on New Year's Eve for the last 12, and that was definitely the worst. Turn out, so, not just for me, but for everywhere. This you know? was worse than last New Year's Eve? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, no, it wasn't. I mean, okay. last New Year's Eve wasn't even open. Nothing was open, so. I mean, this year was weird because, you know, it was like there were people out, and but then there were people at home and completely, like, judging you for being out you know yeah. and then or, people... or putting on a putting on a show and they're like oh you are becoming a super spreader you yeah. are you know and, right. and getting a cost for it but the way it is now like the nothing is stopping this nope. and um you know the the five thousand seaters like aragon ballroom sold out catronata that still went on um radius had chris lake that was i think sold out or close to that's four thousand yeah. That was sold out, you know, or yeah. like, like packed, you know? So it's like, like those events are going on and then you're judging us for 300 people in a club. And then the reality is it's really spreading from Christmas where families are going home and talking to each other at, you know, and being intimate and talking to each other and everything. Also, I think Art Basel was another one that made Omicron blow up because you had people from all over the world going to Florida where there's no restrictions having parties and thinking that COVID is over. And then it, you know, right after that, everything started ticking up too. Right. Right. So. It's like, fuck you, you small independent places. Yeah. yeah but, you know, yeah. if there's a bunch of money to be made for the city that can go on, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which it's, yeah, it's, I mean, everything needs to be transparent now. And, um, I don't think anyone should be judging anyone for getting COVID um or trying to make a living during this time no you know like you can't we, no. we can't be shut down again we can't shut down again cannot do that i, I always tell everybody you know i i you know johnny radke uh the guitar player in my band kill hannah like we always kind of go into it i'm like look i am not anti-vax or anti-science i'm anti-shutdown like i don't think there should be another shutdown right Right, and you talk to club owners, and they don't think so either. No, 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 absolutely not. And they're doing everything they possibly can to avert that, you know? Well, and the double standard, too, right? Like, you know, like when the the lockdown was happening, it's like, oh, Target can be open, but Mm -hmm. restaurants can't. And, you know, it it was just ridiculous. Like, all the independent places weren't allowed to open. Meanwhile, the big corporate chains were. And then they were actually, and still now, everyone's held to the same standard right so now january 3rd i think it is um you know well not today but i'm saying january 3rd everybody had to um start checking for vax cards in all the restaurants and that means more work put on the independent places and the employees to do this and be the police they're not getting extra money they're not having extra hours like they can't hire more people to do this so it's just like you know the the passing of the buck just keeps going down and down and down, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that I was hoping w- would happen is like, you know, people would have to be in their homes and maybe they'd reevaluate their lives and how they treat each other. But no, that hasn't happened. People are 
even more of entitled dicks than they used to be before yeah. this thing started. Yeah, it's absolutely. baffling. It's I, I can't I don't understand. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it, it's frustrating, um, you know. But at this point, there's no changing those people, you know, <laughs> like. Yep. The, the, you know, the people that don't want to get vaccinated, you know, you're not going to change their mind at this point. And um, hopefully they just, you know, they don't get COVID because it could be really serious for them. Well, I'm, I'm really worried about those people. <laughs> Let's talk about. All right. So in case people don't know, uh, I'm really bad at this. But uh, Greg was in Kilhanna. He's a DJ. Uh, he, he's a, he, he produces events. He's a man about town. Um, so if you want to know more about Greg, you know, Google him. Um, <laughs> but what was high school life like for Greg Corner? Oh, high school life. I mean, you've probably seen some of the pictures with my mullet and metal t-shirts. Um, yeah. you know, I, I discovered, you know, like middle school is kind of like when everything happened, right? Cause seventh grade still, you know, was a dork. And I think my favorite bands, I wasn't even into music that much, but if I had somebody asked me what my favorite band is, it would be the cars, you know, or, okay. um, you know, like I like Prince and I liked you too because my brother liked you too. You know? When did Motley Crue come into the So Motley Crue come in. Uh, that is, Poison was the band that kind of got me into music. My friend brought me in 1987 to my first concert that I chose to go to. My parents brought me to Barry Manilow when I was like six, <laughs> you know. So, um, but my first, you know, um, you know, I guess concert of my choosing, I went with my friend to see Poison and Rat in 1987. And after I saw Poison, I'm like, Oh my God, that's what I want to do, you know? Yeah. And I had no idea how to play music. I, I started trying to play guitar. I sucked so bad. Um, and I just got way into music at that point and just started digging deeper and reading every magazine, like metal magazine. And, and getting, so where are you growing up at this point? I'm in Downers Grove, okay. uh, you know, 30 minutes west of Chicago. Um, and, you know, I, I, at the same time, I met a group of friends um, that all lived somewhat around me, but not on my street. And they were also in the metal. Mm -hmm. So every kid had their favorite band. Like one, one friend was Guns N' Roses. Another friend was Motley Crue. You know, mine was Poison. Another one of my friends had a claim Striper because his parents were <laughs> religious. <laughs> so, you know, everybody had their favorite band and your, your identity was determined from the music you were into, you know? No, so, that, that, Gabe, does that sound right to you? <laughs> oh, of course. Of course, if you didn't have the patch, if you didn't have the patch on your jacket, forget it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. If you had the wrong patch, people would call you a poser. Oh, yeah? yeah. Oh, I got called poser all the time because I like Metallica and Poison because they kind of just got heavier, right? So, yeah. you know, eighth grade, I was into, like, you know, all the, the glam metal stuff. And then freshman year... I think that's when I got into Metallica, um, right when Injustice for All came out. I remember I bought that record when it came out. But Master of Puppets was the first record I heard. And, um, and then it just started getting heavier. I got into Anthrax, I got into Slayer, I got into Megadeth. You know? and, and so that was kind of going through high school. And I, I le always lived this double kind of life um, in high school. Like There was those friends that I became with that were all into music. But they became the popular kids in high school, but they were a year younger than me. Okay. So um, they kind of like started playing football and basketball and all that. And I was not athletic whatsoever. Um, I didn't grow until I was out of high school. Um, so I was just like, 
this kid with a mullet wearing a flannel and a metal t-shirt to school every day. And I had my radio show. I got a radio show um, when I was a sophomore in high school. Huh. And I, I would just play all metal music, you know, on it. That was like my the metal hour, you know, and I'd play like all the, you know, metal and stuff. But when I um, would do these shows, I would get, you know, calls in to make a request. And people would be like, oh, can I hear Dinosaur Jr.? And I'm like, uh, and then we had the cart in the radio station. And I pulled out Dinosaur Jr. and I put it in and played it. And I was like, oh, so the, that kind of started influencing me, you know, in the back of my mind without knowing it, um, you know. And so... Uh, I was, you know, totally getting into, you know, heavy music and stuff. I had friends that were popular, but then my other friends were musicians and they were in bands, you know? And so, um, I sucked at guitar. I just couldn't get it together. I couldn't play chords. I couldn't switch chords fast enough. And all my friends in bands by like junior year were looking for a bass player. And so I was like, you know what, maybe I should switch to bass. And so I think I took lessons for like three months and then got one of my friends bands and you know that's how i kind of learned how to play bass is just what band was band. that so it was this band in high school called so we are uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah so I, I i i got into um you know playing with that band and then around the same time uh the the concert that kind of started the motion going towards alternative was actually the first Palooza in 1991. I went mm-hmm. to go see Living Color um, because I was a metalhead and like like Living Color. And then I got there early and I just couldn't believe it was sold out. There was that many people there. It was the first time I saw alternative culture in mass, you know, because there was alternative kids in school and everything. And this is when alternative actually meant something. And, um, you know, uh, going to that show, I was just kind of like, it was like culture shock, you know, I never saw anything like it. And, um, so that Seeing, was like, who was that? It was Jay's Addiction, of course. Was it Susie and the Banshees? Yes, yes Susie and the Banshees, was, was Rollins there, Band. Rollins um, Band. Was yeah, Nine Inch Nails. Nine Nails. Oh, it was no, Nine Inch Nails. Nails. Yeah, that was the first year. Nine Inch Nails. Ice-T and Body Count. Ice-T and Body Count. That's right. You know? Right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, and it was, it, was, um, it was awesome, you know? And, and so that kind of like, you know, that w- happened junior year, basically going to senior year. So senior year, I started getting into, like, Smashing Pumpkins because those carts were in the radio station. And I started playing, you know, the Pumpkins and Alice in Chains. And, like, you know, like, I remember seeing Alice in Chains, I think, in 90 or 91 when they opened for Slayer, Anthrax, and Megadeth, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were always opening for all the metal bands. Like, they opened for Van Halen, too. I right. remember I saw that. Yeah. And, um, and I liked them, you know. So uh, that kind of just started the wheels turning and... Um, by the time I graduated, so this station that's playing—is it playing just o- over lunchtime, or is it no, like no? It's... So, so it was a real radio station. It was eighty-eight point three WDGC uh-huh. in Downers Grove. It was a shortwave radio station, but it went out, and they had programming basically. I think until like ten o'clock each night. Right. So it started in the morning, and kids would go. They had the radio station in Downers Grove South and Downers Grove North both shared a radio station. So they had the radio station in each, um, like a studio in each school. But if you had a show on the weekend, you'd have to go to North mm-hmm. because that's where the actual signal was, I think, where the, the tower was. Um, so I did both. I did some during lunch hour and then some on the weekends. Um, and I, I just loved um, turning people on to new music. So I would always be about new music, like finding all the new metal bands. And like, I remember um, 
reading Metal Edge and I just saw a picture of Warrant and they know, you know, their album didn't come out yet or anything. I'm like, oh my God, I got to get that. And so the day the album came out, I bought the Warren album, you know, without even hearing a thing just from seeing a picture because uh-huh. I thought they looked cool. You know, it was, this was what, 1988 or something, you know, or 89. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I was just, you know, there wasn't the internet back then. So it was like, you're reading the magazines you'd get in like whatever, you know, grocery stores that right. were all metal edge and rip magazine and circus hit parader. You know? Yeah, Hit Parader, yeah. Mm. And then by senior year, there was Alternative Press. And Alternative Press back then was actually real. You know, it was like Nine Inch Nails would be on the cover and Susie and the Banshees would be on the cover, you know. So um, I started getting into that and also started watching 120 Minutes, you know, on on, um, uh, MTV. MTV, Yeah. And, you know, I was always watching Headbangers Ball, too, and finding out about new music there. But at that time, radio wasn't really breaking metal bands except for i don't know if you remember wvvx mm-hmm. um, that yeah. was scott in chicago loftus. yeah scott loftus yeah <laughs> and so i won tickets for that like so many shows on that on that radio station i remember i got front row for scorpions i got front row for rat you know so um but he had like that 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 station would play new bands and i would get turned on to new music from it right so um but yeah and then you know uh, the evolution of me as a musician Basically, I got into British music and everything and, and punk, and I went through all the phases from, like, 92 to 95. Right. And I, I would say by, like, 94 or 95, um, I just got burnt out of um, rock music. Like, when Hootie and the Blowfish and Matchbox 20 and, like, all those bands were considered alternative, I'm like, fuck this, yeah. you know? And so I went to the counterculture, which at the time was rave music, and, and you know, that was, like, the real underground and that's when I started getting into electronic music. But I didn't DJ, actually, until 2000. Um, but I started throwing, like, underground house parties and kind of, like, really small raves um, at, like, you know, for after-hour spots and stuff like that through, the, like, the late 90s, even when I was in Kill Hannah and stuff. Right. Were they places that you had to, like... Yeah, you pay, like... Secret place, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, I did, a, I did one party that was in a belt factory right on... Yeah. Right next to Hollywood Diner on North and Ashland, this was probably 1995 or 96. There was literally holes in the, um, like, that went down two floors. And, and, and like, people could have died. But we kind of just, like, roped them off and then, like, you know, brought in the sound system, had the DJs. And, like, the guy who made all the money was the guy selling nitrous because that room was always packed the most. And, like, everyone was doing nitrous. Um, <laughs> But it's weird because I, I like again I live this duality right so I was into that but I was also in playing in a band you know so at right. that time I was playing in like shoegaze bands like a band that sounded like Hum and then mm-hmm. you know I would just I I, I after high school I kind of I played with some friends that lived around there in in my neighborhood in '93 we had a band called Push Daisy and we played like the Avalon uh-huh. and everything and that music was great I still like the songs to this day. And um, that really, you know, it was really like British influence as well and somewhat electronic. It was kind of like, you know, Ned's Atomic Dustbin or Soup Dragons, you know, that kind of stuff. And so yeah. I, I totally got into that whole genre during that time in like 93 and, um, you know, started coming downtown and, you know, just opening up my mind to all different kinds of music. And, um, you know, then after that band broke up because some of the guys went to college. I was like, I'm not playing with anyone that lives in my hometown because they're all like turning into deadheads and playing like jam, jam bands. And I'm like, mm-hmm. fuck this. Like, I always hated like the hippie 
um, music, you Great. know, um, like the like kids that like the Grateful Dead. And that was another thing too. Like my friends that like were like diehard Motley Crue fans and 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 Guns N' Roses fans. Like in 1987, by 92 they were like deadheads. Like I tried smoking pop, but I never got high. And then Matt Devine, the singer of my band, got me high for the first time. He made me a pop brownie cake for my 30th birthday. Ooh. And we all did it and just totally got high and went and see like Dodgeball or something. Maybe we um, should make it. Hey, Gabe, maybe we should get you a pop brownie. No, I'm not eating any brownies. I don't care what you say. <laughs> you're not going to throw up in school anymore, Gabe. You're not, you're not in school. So, Gabe, you've never been high or no? I was. We were talking about this earlier. I, I have smoked pot and I got high when I was 13 in junior high, but I threw up. As he I smoked out of a pop can. It was a beer can. Oh, a beer, beer can. can. Awesome. And I threw up and never tried it again. It's probably, oh, probably man. seeds, man. If you want to really get high, eat this stuff. So you're, <laughs> yeah. you're throwing parties, you're hanging out in, in the scene, you're done with rock, sort of. I'm not, well, I'm not done with rock. I'm, I'm, I, I still like the bands that came out before right. 94, 95, you know? But, but you're also I, getting into dance music. Yeah, also getting into dance music, and but still, by I was still playing in a rock band. I was still playing right. bass in, in a rock band, you know. And so at the same time, I was working like two jobs. Uh, one was you know at Circuit City in the Burbs, and then the other oh, one I was God. I was working. I remember at, when you worked at Circuit City? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then another one was I was bar backing at this nightclub called Tunnel, which was like this house music place, you know. Uh-huh. And so this, you know, Matt Devine comes in there and I just saw Kill Hannah like a couple of weeks before because everybody in the band I was playing with at the time, we, I don't think we even had a name yet, but we were there just like, oh, you got to see this band Kill Hannah. So I went to see Kill Hannah. I'm like, this is exactly the kind of band I should be in, you know? And so um, he comes in, we start talking and, you know, like kind of just shoot the shit a little bit, but I was working. So I'm like, oh, I got to go back to work. I'll see you upstairs, you know? because uh, the dance like the dance floor was upstairs mm-hmm. so I'm working I see him again and I'm like and he's like hey you play bass don't you and I go how the fuck did you know that and he's like you just look like a bass player he's like we need a bass player right now you should try out and I'm like okay so I met with Matt and Carrie it was the Carrie was a guitar player at the time and we met you know on Belmont and Clark back then that was like the epicenter of alternative you know and so um we just talked about music and then we loved John Hughes films and we were talking about John Hughes and like just bonded as friends, you know, and as like somebody that you want to be, get to know better or like whatever. And he's like, Hey, so we're playing a show next week. You want to do it? And they never mm-hmm. even heard me play, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm like, okay. So I like learned all the songs in a week and then played a show in St. Louis um, or like, I think it was outside of St. Louis or something in a cafeteria with like nobody. And, um, you know, it, it went okay, but it was really weird going from r- playing in bands where you all wrote music together uh-huh. and um, kind of jamming through songs and, like, them forming to Matt Devine, singer-songwriter, here's the song, play it. You can add, you know, things to it, but just, like, this is the structure, you know? Right. And so it was really weird getting used to that rhythm. Because he's writing to drum machines, not to, like, actual players. Okay. You know, so everything seemed really stiff to me, and it took a while to, like, learn that style. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I wound up, you know, playing with him. And Matt never, I remember playing in the band for, like, two years, and I'm hustling my ass off. I'm passing out flyers. We're, you know, we pass out 10,000 flyers yeah. 
for a show, just like annihilate. And everything I learned from promoting parties and raves, I applied to Kill Hannah. Yeah, so, I mean, you you would do that. You, the flyers were everywhere. Everything, everything. Yeah, and we get full color flyers. Like it was almost like they're they're like mini rave flyers, right? You know. Right. So it was like we put a lot of effort into graphic design and um, and just promotion. You know, like we would like seriously print up 10,000 tickets. And if you brought the ticket to Metro, you get for free until 9 p.m. on a Tuesday night. Mm. And we'd start bringing, you know, like when I first got in the band, there was like 300 people there and then 400, then 500, then 600, then 700, and then 800 by 2000. And then we're selling it out by, I think 2000 was our first sellout or 2001. And that was with no label, no, you know, like no radio, nothing. And um, other right. bands that were signed at that time were opening for us. Right. You know, like they, the Metro would put like bands to open for us. And I remember, um, yeah, like we played this band 12 Rods and Todd, Todd Rundgren played with them and they opened for us. So yeah. like Todd Rundgren opened for Kill Hannah. Which Was is that so pissing weird. you off? Like, no, like how no. come we're not on I mean, a major label? Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, definitely. At the time, it, you know, it was like they were kind of like using us because they could play in front of all these people. Meanwhile... Right you know, labels would be signing them. But you knew how hard it was to get a record deal out of Chicago. Like, the labels would just not come to Chicago, you know? Um, maybe during that small spurt right. in 93, 94, exactly. um, after Pumpkins blew up. But 97, they were not coming to Chicago. By that time, you know? it was over. Yeah, yeah. it was and over. And you guys are being treated like, you know, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Yeah, and we were outcasts of Chicago, you know? Like, we were... All the indie guys would make fun of us because we wore makeup and we had electronics in our music. And then the metal guys would make fun of us for the same reasons and like the heavy scene that was going around, you know, like Disturbed and like all that, you know, like that stuff. Um, And we just You guys were a bit more glam, you know? Yeah, yeah. We were. And and people would show up to your shows dressed like you. Like, you would be dressed like the band. And there was this party atmosphere going on at your shows that it was much more like of an 80s sunset strip vibe than it was well, you know yeah. t-shirts and jeans in chicago and yeah because like we, we had an image right so right. our fans were attracted to that exactly. and they started dressing like that and we formed this whole scene because we weren't part of the goth scene either we played some shows with them but they always thought we were too like commercial sounding for that too but we we had all these elements from all these scenes and kind of just made our own and um you know it it it, it was good because the you know the I believe in easy come, easy go, you know? So if you get big off a radio, all those people are not going to be there when you're not on the radio. And so we built this great fan base, you know, one fan at a time. And, um, you know, finally got a record deal in in 2002. Um, Not from, you know, selling out Metro, not from having a number one song on the radio as a local band. You know, it was like, it got to a guy, an A&R guy, John Rubley at Atlantic from our lawyer, and he gave him our, our old record. And so he just came to see a showcase and saw us play. And just like the songs, wanted to sign us because he just signed. We didn't just sign, but he had success with POD. So the label kind of gave him a little bit more freedom um, to sign another band. And he was always, you know, growing up, John Rubley was like into like, you know, uh, like, Love and Rockets and Susan the Banshees and like, right. you know, a lot of the goth stuff and the shoegaze stuff. And he was actually the first booker of the second stage at Lollapalooza. Mm-hmm. So he booked the second stage of Lollapalooza since it started, I think, in 92. So where did he come see you guys play? So he actually just, we went and did a showcase at um, 
uh, what was the place called? Superior Street. Um, See, Superior to me, Street this Street. is so crazy because, like, I mean, you know, like that's something that we did, but we didn't. We weren't selling out the Metro. Why don't you just tell the motherfucker to come yeah. and sit here, yeah, right? The Metro, yeah, I don't right. Get it. I, I yeah, because they, it didn't work with their, you know, like schedule. And and, yeah. and before then, you know, we were getting flown out and doing showcases for Universal and like, you know, rooms like like rehearsal rooms in, right. in L.A. and everything. But you know, it just they couldn't see the big picture they would just see us and be like that guy can't sing there's nothing here you know and just move on um but if anyone saw us in chicago and saw everyone dressing like us 1100 people you know like i mean it's exactly what motley Crue and all those bands are doing on the sunset strip they were like getting an audience and people would go and go hey we got something here let's take that audience well yeah and and the the benefit they had is all the labels were in la right right so it was easier for them just like to do that and another thing i borrowed from motley Crue that i learned from watching motley Crue uncensored Uh was um they talked about how they had a house and they would invite everyone back to the house after their shows and so i started doing that at metro and i started announcing my address (laughs) <laughs> on on the metro stage and be like after party at my house you know and right. and, and not so, and my roommates would come flying back what the hell are you doing you know and i'm like yeah. it's gonna be fine it's gonna be cool and then we drive home and there's literally a line going down the block to get into my house and she's like what are you gonna do i'm like i'm gonna let him in and yeah. so i just like let him in and you know that was a thing you know it was it was kind of like social media before social media right we let the veil down we let the 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 fans be part of our scene mm-hmm. you know um, and our parties and everything, you know, so they saw us having fun and like, you know, and that that always stayed, you know, because 2005, I started throwing this party called Darkway Disco, Disco, which was like this like indie electro party before indie electro happened. And I just started taking all the cool kids from the Kill Hannah thing and sneaking them in right. to the to the clubs and just influencing that way with music because we were playing like all this cutting edge music, you know, at the time. Yeah, you guys are definitely tastemakers in the club scene around around yeah. the mid two thousands. Yeah, and then and also just being friends, you know, me coming from the rave scene, I was friends with a you know a lot of the DJs and and promoters and stuff like that. So we were always had one foot in like the electronic and club world, and you know, living you know Tommy Sunshine and I lived together for a few years, uh, like two years I think, and um, you know, just friends with a, a lot of the you know the different even club owners. Right. You know, and stuff. So Matt wound up working at Red Number Five, I remember. Yeah. You know, and uh, I definitely brought Matt to a lot of electronic things back then. He, he, even though, you know, when, when I got in the band, he was going to raves and stuff. Um, he was doing that. Yeah, and no, it was everywhere. It was exciting. Yeah. But all right, let's yeah. not get there yet. Like, yeah. talk, talk about what your uh, major label experience with okay. Atlantic was like, you know? Okay. I mean, so the guy comes out, sees you at Superior Street. Yeah. And, and it was like, okay, let's yeah, do let's this. Do yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's before then he saw us like play at Metro and he's like, holy shit. Okay. You know, so like, he did see you play at Metro. Yeah. But after he already offered the deal. Okay. All right. Okay. okay. Uh, so it kind of just like, you reinforced know, encouraged him, yeah. and reinforced yeah. him, you know? Um, but at that time, um, before then, um, Carson Daly uh, was interested in signing us. He was starting a label with the guys from Loud Records, uh-huh. uh, the Rifkins. And, um, they were coming out and wanted to sign us, but they were just starting the label. So we were kind of like hesitant. We, we wanted a, a major label deal, you know? Right. And so we were kind of like hesitant on that, but they were like super cool, man. Like Carson Daly was actually a really cool guy, really believed in us, knew Yo, a lot about music. You know music. Carson from back in the day when he was, where was he at? San Jose, Gabe? KOME, wasn't he? 
He yeah, like radio. Music. Yeah, like radio, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he actually knew a lot about music. You know, yeah, he, he like did. knew he's like right. he knew about my bloody Valentine and like all these like four AD bands and everything, you know? So it was like he was he was really cool. And I remember, you know, we had definitely major labels sniffing around. And our manager at the time, um, he was trying to like put them against each other and trying to, you know, you know how they used to do that, like, but no one would give an offer. You know, and so we got an offer from Roadrunner, but it was really low and that didn't wind up doing anything, you know. Um, And so we met with all the majors, met with Warner. We met with Universal. Um, Sony was through loud, you know, like like so we had like the the Sony angle and then Atlanta came through and um, we really got along great with John Rubley, um, you know, our A&R guy and, you know, wound up signing. Uh, I think in July of 2002. And so our first tour was in August, September, and October of 2002. And it was called the You Saw It First Tour. Uh And um, they put all these bands that just got major label deals on the road to play college shows in like the unions and the cafeterias were they all on atlantic or was no no they're all different labels you know there's this one guy kazer was on sony this other band july for kings that was on rca this other band carbondale i think that was on rca as well Uh um i'm trying to think if there was another band uh so we we play you know do this tour we play in front of like two people every night it is so embarrassing you know and like i remember like everyone was hyping up florida like oh man jacksonville dude we did this we did this tour last year and there was like five thousand people it was amazing and so we're playing this big outdoor theater that could fill like ten thousand, and there's three people there (laughs) like in florida and they're like we're like oh my god is this what tour is you know yeah so yes it is it is it is and we learned that we learned that the hard way right so after we get done with that tour, we go to L.A. and record a record with Sean Bevan, who did our demo. Sean Bevan also, you know, engineered Downward Spiral, um, produced Marilyn Manson, um, you know, did a, a ton of, you know, work in that kind of industrial scene. But mm-hmm. he also just did No Doubt, uh, Return to Saturn, like, you know, engineered it. Um, and, you know, is getting his foot into other things. And he had a really good ear. We bonded with him, too. He was awesome. And so we wound up recording this record for like, God, I think we went in there in October and we didn't come out until March. Ooh, and And um, the wasted money is just unbelievable. In LA. The wasted time. The time. They put us in Oakwood apartments um, for that entire time. I remember they rented a vintage Ampeg bass head uh-huh. i recorded all my bass parts in like three days and that thing sat there and we rented it for like you know three months mind blowing and it's just like it, we, i could have bought it yeah. you know and yeah. and you and did our, yeah and 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 our <laughs> i just can't believe like our manager at the time it's like this is how records were made back then you know yeah. this is 2002 so this is before kind of like the you know, Napster was somewhat a thing, but it wasn't affecting record sales quite yet. Yeah, so you definitely got, saw the tail end of records getting yes, made that way. Yes, and so we we were the last, one of the last, seriously, yeah. one of the last bands to not have a 360 deal, you know? Right, 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 um, right. So we owned everything, which was awesome. Right, well, tell okay. people what 360 is now, because, I mean, that, so, that is a certain kind of insidious, that if people don't know what it is, it's interesting. Yeah, so... Uh, 
you know, before 360 deals existed, bands would own their publishing, their merchandising, their live shows, and their records. You know, the label, of course, would own the masters of the right. record. The label would try to do publishing deals. Yeah. Some but, some of them had publishing companies, right. but not really, and, not all of them. And bands you know? would gladly do publishing deals. It was yeah. you did, they weren't forced to do publishing deals. Yeah. But this 360 thing is different because yes. So the 360 became all in one. So when you sign with the label, you sign your publishing to them, you sign your merchandising to them, mm. and your live show revenue. To Ugh, them. Oh my God, it is so gross. And, and so, you know, back then, I think our deal when we got it, I think our deal was like. I think we spent. I think it was like three hundred and fifty or four hundred fifty thousand dollars or something, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and of course, we saw none of that money. I think you know each of us maybe made fifteen thousand or something, you know, from the record deal, right. which saved my ass with debt, which was awesome because yeah. I was totally in debt then, and paid off all my credit cards. It was the best thing that ever happened to me, you know. Um, but it's not uh, a bad deal in two thousand two. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so. Um, you know, I got to quit my job, you know, go on tour is awesome. But yeah, these 360 deals, um, I don't know how a band would survive with that because you barely make any money without that. Exactly. And, you know, and then when you got like a publishing deal, it was like getting another record deal, you know, right. it was almost as exactly. much money, you know? So that was like another, you know, the only uh, way bands book. can make it is go on tour and yeah. sell their merch. And the label goes, no, you know what? I'll take that too. It, and so, yeah, disgusting. so um, we're so lucky we did that. And I remember by the, our second record, they were trying to force us into that yeah. to try to get our record to come out. And I was actually having talks with them because they wanted to learn how I was doing merch because <laughs> I was doing all of our merch independently. I was our merch company. I would buy the shirts from wholesale. We were one of the first bands I remember to print on American Apparel. This is back in 2000. Um, I would buy all the shirts directly from the wholesaler. I had a printer, so I would pick up the shirts, deliver them to the printer. Printer would do them. I'd pick up the shirts from them, and then we I wouldn't have to pay shipping costs or anything. And that continued all through the record deal, too. So right. I was doing that, and then I was also doing online sales and doing fulfillment on the road. So I would be on our days off in the hotel room, printing shipping labels, shipping out all these t-shirts all around the world, you know, and then had to go to the post office and drop them all off. And then, you know, and we were doing like 10,000 a month sometimes on, yeah. on just online, you know, right. and thank God the record label never owned a piece of that. So, you know, we do our first record. It does okay on radio. Like it doesn't really pick up traction the sales aren't there for the label to get behind it. We couldn't get really, with the booking agent we had at the time, couldn't get us any tours. So we were just playing in front of like, you know, we'd go to Cleveland and the first time there would be four people. And then the second time we'd go there, there'd be eight people. And then the third time we'd go there, there'd be 50 or 25. And then the next time would be a hundred, you know? And so it, it kind of started building little by little, right? But it wasn't enough for the label. And so um, we finally got a tour with the Sounds, which was great because we right. were friends with their manager. And so that was a great tour for us. Um, by the, by that time the label gave up on us though, you know, and then, um, we got a tour with this band, him from Finland and they were all like, um, Bam Margera was like all about them and everything. So we got into Bam's world and he started wearing our t-shirts on, you know, the Viva La Bam show and like, you know, like supported us and everything. And, uh, him 
loved us and we they, we did we did our first US tour with him and um their first US tour I should say not ours um and they loved us and they wanted to bring us to Europe and so they're like you could use our gear share our bus we want you guys to come to Europe and our manager said no our label said no and we're just like we didn't go and then afterwards we're like what the fuck did we just do and so we fired our manager and um recorded our second record with Johnny K and in Chicago, we did it for one fifth of what we did the last record for. Right. They didn't give us any, um, uh, it really much of advance, but how we got the second record was when we were touring with him, all the labels were coming to see him to try to sign them because they didn't have us distribution. And at that time, Jason Flom was, uh, head of Atlantic and he came to see him in Seattle and saw us play. And he's like, this band is great. Like, what are, what are we doing? You know, like, and so he gave the green light for the second record after mm -hmm. seeing us play live, which was awesome. So Jason Flom, I love you. <laughs> which was already in the can at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, like the first, the first album was in the can. So second album was not, okay, second album wasn't done yet. You know? Right. So he green let the second record, gave us a budget to at least get it done. Right. Got the, got the record done. Um, and then we had to get a new manager and so the, we were meeting with all these different managers and we wanted to go with this one manager, but our label's like, if you don't go with this other manager, because he had radio, he had a radio promotions company. Mm -hmm. And he's like, if you don't go with that manager, you won't have a second, the, the album will never come out. Right. And so we wind up signing with this manager that we didn't really care for, but, you know, he had some juice, supposedly. Um, wound up working the first single to radio. It did okay. Not enough for the label to get behind us. He gave up on us label gave up on us and uh we wound up going with an old manager uh friend of ours that actually managed the sounds this guy john davis who you guys know i, I know john. as well yeah and so he started um you know we're like we're going to the uk like we're gonna do it like shiny toy guns was going out there they needed an opening band they gave us the same thing we could share gear and and share a bus and we're like we're doing it so we went we played in front of 100 people every night and then um you know uh, that um, got us a booking agent. And so the next time we go back to um, the UK, we play this festival that our booking agent got us on um, called uh, Give It a Name Festival. And it was like, we were like the, the second band of like 10, you know, on the side stage um, at like two o'clock in the afternoon. And we're playing in, in London and um, we go into our second song. And there's 15,000 kids jumping up and down. Yeah. And we, at that point, we had no record deal, no label, no radio, no press, nothing, you know? And all these labels there were like, who the fuck is this band, you know? And Roadrunner was there. And they're like, we want to sign this band. And they found out we we're in Atlantic. Atlantic just bought Roadrunner. So they're like, oh, we can just license the album, put it out uh, over here. And so... Did they remember that they tried to sign you before? And well, it was different people shit? because that okay. was U.S. That was U.S. Roadrunner, oh, not okay. U.K., right? So Roadrunner, uh, we wound up signing with Roadrunner for U.K. And we really saw how a label should be. Like, what we did there in three years took us, like, 10 in, mm -hmm. in, in the U.S., you know? And because the label was a machine... They worked us to radio. They worked us to press. They took all the ammunition they had from our shows and, you know, and just grew it, you know, and it was great. But 
the like when we went to make the record right like we didn't have to they were just using what was already existing to make this album but they wanted our artwork atlanta couldn't even find our artwork yeah they they totally gave up on it luckily matt our singer is a graphic designer he found all the stuff that he sent atlantic and got it from the photographer that we worked with because we had relationships with him recreated the album cover and then put it out um on roadrunner in the uk but we also got sabotaged by Atlantic because they were sending the import to um, the UK and the import was cheaper than the domestic <sighs> that was in the UK. So everyone was buying the import and so it was going towards record sales in the US, right. but not in the UK. So if you sell like 20,000 records in the US, that's nothing. But if you do that in the UK, that's like, right. that's good enough. You yeah. know, so it, we wound up, you know, like the labels like, well, you didn't sell enough records. So and they and they dropped us, too, you know, um, and then cut to the the, the third even though record. they're affiliated, they're yes. trying to cut each other off at the knees. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's just it's because they don't work together. You know, nobody yeah. like look at our government. They don't work together. Yeah. No one's working together. You know, so it's just so, like so we're going to go the way of the major labels. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty four. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's very interesting to me. Like, you, you know, like when you you didn't form Kill Hannah, you joined Kill Hannah. Yeah, yeah. And 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 Matt was the driving force. But like, you know, I see you as a, a huge driving force behind that band. And well, we were a team. You know, we were we were a band in every sense of the word. You know, and um, we, you know, forming a band and finding three, four, or in your case, one other person mm -hmm. that just has your same ambition, same vision, and same drive to make it happen is so important. It's like, it's probably harder to find than marriage, you know? And like, we did it and it was awesome for a long period of time, you know? Yeah. And, and Matt and I were a great team, you know, like we, he would have an idea and I'd be able to get it done, you know, right. like, or, or vice versa, you know, like I, you know, for merch, I would be like, Hey, give me some ideas. And he would give me some ideas. And then I'd like make the shirt and like, we'd get it on the way, you know, like, and so, um, and then he, you know, he had a song idea and he'd run it off Johnny and Dan and us and, and practice. And then the song would come together, you know, like it'd be a skeleton. And, and so it was just a great team, you know, we were abandoned every sense of the word. And when you spend that much time together, it is like a gang. Yeah. You know, and, and you get to know each other better than sometimes your romantic partner. You know, because yeah. you're literally spending more time with these people than you even spent with your family. Right. But then you know? when people start having families, you realize that gangs are kind of yeah, bullshit and you don't really want to be a part of a gang anymore. Yeah. You know? Well, it just gets harder. It just gets harder to, to keep that drive, right? Because your responsibilities and your view of the world changes. Yeah. So. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. But. <laughs> I mean, would you say Kill Hannah has officially broken up by this point? Yeah, we played our final shows in 2015 Yeah. Um, at Metro, which you were at, you were a part of. And, yeah. um, you know, but we're still friends to this day. You know, like we all have, we have a band text. We talk all the time, um, you know, and, and it, it's, it's, it's great. I think the secret is probably we never made a shit ton of money. And I think if that would have happened, that probably would have drove the band apart um, as it does in a lot of bands. You know, watching that Go-Go's documentary, you just like, 
you're like, yep, there it is. You know, it's like, it's like once the publishing comes in and once the, like everyone starts, you know, like right. one person starts making more money than the other, the other gets jealous and it's yes. just like, it's you know, important. and then, yeah. And that never happened, uh, in Kill Hannah. So, um, it's a blessing and a curse at the same time, but yeah, also, you know, you, know you, you barely needed the labels. I mean, yeah, they yeah. almost didn't do anything for you except make you spend a whole bunch of money to make some records, you know? Yeah. And, 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 you know, being uh, on a label yourself, you know, back in the day and everything, you realize like you saw all the bands that got record deals and didn't go anywhere. And the ones that did were usually the ones that got radio and got like, you know, some traction mm. and then the labels could do something with that. Right. But they can't start that engagement and that spark, you know? The band really has to do that. Yeah. So, um, but I feel like we did have all that stuff. It was just like, we were just a little too far ahead uh, music-wise um, at every step, you know? Yeah. Like, we were just Bad like... timing? Yeah, we had like, you know, we had electronics on our music and, you know, we were getting made fun of, you know, we were makeup and we were getting fun of. And like, I remember Alternative Press... They, they, we never got invited on Warp Tour or got written up in Alternative Press because we had keyboards in our music and we wore makeup. And then cut to 2008, every band that's on Warp Tour is wearing makeup and has electronic in their music, you know? <laughs> so it's just like, you know, we were just always, like when we first came out, we sounded like The Cure and we got made fun of. And then Interpol comes out and it's like, everybody loves everybody The Cure again, like the cure, yeah. you know? And it's like, we wrote a record like that in 1996, you know? And right. so... But that came out in 2002, you know? So we were just, like, uh, always, like, a little bit ahead. Right. Yeah. Tell us about uh, DJing uh, Barack Obama's 50th oh. birthday party. <laughs> Which is totally weird when you talk about being in a band. Yeah. Um, so, so um, yeah, so at this point, right, I'm, I'm, I'm DJing for supplemental income while I was in Kilhanna. So this is, like, you know, I, I got off tour in, what, 2004? And I would need some extra money in between tours. So I'd wind up DJing at like Jub Jub Club or this place Trivia or this other place, Elm Street Liquors. I mean, we all you know, did. It, it, yeah, yeah, we all did, right? We yeah. all did. That was like the, what we did to make money while we're not on tour. Yeah. And so um, I didn't learn how to be, I didn't know how to beat match or actually be a DJ then, right? So I just. None of loved, us did. Yeah, none of us did. And I was just into new music, right? So I was always playing like new music, but also classic stuff. And, um, still being like a radio DJ, right? And mm -hmm. so um, I was just playing, you know, different places to make some extra money. And then when we got off tour in 2010, really, and I'm like, shit, what am I going to do for money? Because right. I always had the band to make money in between that. And all the cool parties I was playing, you know, being in Dark Wave Disco, we were like playing shows with like Justice and Mastercraft and Digitalism and like all these like, you know, electronic bands at the time. All the money they, goes to those guys. Yeah, but we didn't, we weren't getting any money. Yeah. You know, we were playing right. all these cool gigs and I realized the cool gigs don't pay. Right. But the shitty ones do. And so I sold out that way. And, you know, like that was always like the big divide, right? Like with us being in original bands, there was always the cover band world. And you can make uh, right. more money in the cover band world than you could in the original band world. Yeah. For most bands, I, I wouldn't say all bands, right? But but most bands. I remember talking to my one friend who was in a big cover band, and he was telling me he was making over ninety thousand a year just playing shows in Chicago. And I'm like, dude, that's like, that's a band that's playing like Aragon Ballroom. That's what those band members are making, you know, yearly, you know. Yeah. And so I was like, oh my god, you know. Meanwhile, I'm making a thousand dollars a month 
you know, being in a signed band touring around the world. You know, but like that's just the reality. So it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll, Greg. Yeah, <laughs> all right. So I get off tour and I'm like, I'm gonna have to sell out. So I stop. I start playing like pop music and top forty um, at this one place called Old Town Social. It was on uh, right. North Avenue, and so I kind of cut my teeth there. Just and I remember um, at that time I was just playing on CDs. Right, I would burn CDs and bring them in and play them on the. Yeah. the the archaic CDJs, CDJs yeah. you know, like, right. and, um, and so I was just doing that. And, um, that's how, I mean, I learned how to beat match and everything in dark wave disco just on CDs, not using a computer. But in 2010, I'm like, I'm going to need all this music. I'm going to need a little pivot. I'm, I'm just going to get Serato. So I literally bought Serato, went to the gig and learned it while I was playing <laughs> like, and, and kind of just started using Serato and, doing old town social and started doing like these, you know, open format sets. And at that time I was still friends with a lot of the promoters in Chicago and started playing other places like Debonair and doing like these open format, you know, uh, sets. And so my word, the, the word of me kind of got around cause I was already in Kilhanna. I was already in the DJ world throwing parties. So I just knew a lot of people. Right. Yeah. And so, um, Barack Obama was putting together this fundraiser for his 50th birthday party at Aragon Wait, Did Ballroom. you say Barack Obama? Barack Obama. Okay, President right, Obama. Right, Barack Obama. Right, right. Okay. Um, he was putting together this event. I mean, not him, but his team, the campaign. Um, and, um, <laughs> right. you know, be... <laughs> Barack didn't call it Greg. Yeah. 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 Greg, I'm throwing a tonight. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, so there, his team, you know, uh, got, by recommended, like I was recommended to them. So uh, I had a call with- Do you uh, know how? I mean- Yes. So um, Harper Reed, who is a friend of mine, he oh, was right. IT for the Obama campaign. That's so right. So he, he threw my name in the hat along with a bunch of other people, right? Like right. not just me, but there was a lot of other people that other people were throwing you know, their friends in and stuff, right? Um, but every person they went to in the city, my name would come up. Right. And so they're like, okay, we, you know, so I had a conversation with them, told them what I thought I should play at the event. You know, they're like, oh, where are you playing next? And I'm like, oh, I'm playing Old Town Social on Friday, you know, blah, blah. And so they came without, and I didn't even know they were there. And so they came, they loved it. And they're like, we want to we book you for this. And I'm like, awesome. Okay. And so like, send us every single song that you think you would play. Uh -huh. And so I send them every single song, you know, I think that, you know, that, that I would play and they, they prove it. Um, what and, songs got nixed? Uh, Salt and Peppa, Push It. <laughs> <laughs> Which I wouldn't have played anyway. You right. know, I kind of just gave them my open format, you know, like playlist or whatever. Um, and then along, you know, I definitely researched what Obama liked and, you know, tried to like, you know, play in that world too. Uh -huh. um, so, yeah, so um, I, I, got, I got chosen. And I remember there was another DJ friend of mine, that Matt Roan, who was also up for it. I'm like, hey could we do it together? You know, cause I wanted to give him some spotlight too. And, um, they're like, actually with secret service and everything, it's better just to have you like, it's one less person we have to deal with. Blah, blah. I'm like, okay. You know? Um, so sorry, Matt Rowan. So, um, <laughs> but you know, at least you got the, uh, credit for trying to be a nice guy and well, then you I, still I, got all the money and, and, and you know, the, well, the well, glory there's no money. They can't pay you. What? So yeah. When you ever, you see these, um, shows, um, that, political parties put on, you know, whether it's a fundraiser, 
you know, um, show, you know, after the inauguration and everything, uh -huh. they can't pay artists. So, because it's like, you can't use campaign money to do that. So the okay. artist has to um, donate their performance or their time. And then they'll pay for like costs of like, right. you know, getting their hotels, like whatever, they'll pay for that. Right. But they can't actually pay the artists, right? Huh. So this is a birthday party. Yeah, this is a birthday party, but it's also the kickoff of the 2012 campaign. This was in 2011. So it was a fundraiser too. Yeah, a okay. fundraiser. So, um, and uh, Herbie Hancock played. Nice. Jennifer Hudson played, and OK Go played. Right? Okay. So, How does the artist get fucked on every in every circumstance? <laughs> like campaigns are responsible for paying the hotel and paying the catering yeah. and all that shit. Why can't they fucking pay the artist? I, I know, I know, I know. It's just, you it's, haven't seen I mean, the theme think, of this episode <laughs> of the show. I, mean, I think I think they find a way to, you know, especially when it comes to inauguration, um, whether it's a charity, whatever mm. that the artist is right. affiliated with. Like there, there's there's loopholes as we know in everything, you know. But me not you know that huge of a dude you know or or an artist you know even okay go for that matter it's like you know it's just and and at the time too i totally believed in barack obama you know like I, he was like i i, I was on board even mm -hmm. before i was up for this you know so i i believed in the campaign and everything and um and this is for his reelection too you know right. so um I, I was totally on board you know and and so um i wind up they're like, you got to come here at, you know, 1 p.m. and drop off all your gear. So I, I go there, set up all my stuff, and then, then I leave. And then all the, you know, Secret Service comes in, checks everything. And when I come back, I can't bring anything, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. So I come back in. They do the wands, you know. And they're like, okay, we're going to do a run-through. You're going to play up here. You're in the balcony. Once you get done with your set, we'll let you know. We'll come up and get you. And then you're going to come down. And we're going to sing happy birthday on stage to, to President Barack Obama. I'm like, what? I'm like, That's, there's no way this is going to happen. No fucking way, you know? And so I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know? And so um, we, and then they're like, and then after that, you're going to come back in this room. And then you'll get to meet the president. And, um, and I'm like, what? Like, I never expected any of this to happen. Right. So I was like, okay, whatever, you know? So show starts. First song I play, Primal Scream Loaded, which I've, I've always done almost all of my corporate sets and in, in, in any DJ set. So tradition, play that. And then, you know, wind up playing. And then, you know, Jennifer Hudson comes on. And I play some more. Then OK Go comes on. Then I play some more. And then Herbie Hancock. Then I play some more. And, you know, the president's still not there yet. And so I'm going through all my songs. And I'm almost out of time. Yeah. And uh, like out of songs. Right. And he's right. still not there yet. And thankfully, I'm in a band. So I know where to look because no one's coming up and getting me and saying, keep going. You know, I'm looking at the soundboard and the soundboard person's looking at me and they're doing the, you know, winding right. up thing, like keep going, you know. And so I'm like, OK, you know, so it's like, you know, I'm, I'm playing. He's still not there yet. I'm like, OK, what are like uplifting songs I can play right before he comes on stage? You know, and I'm like. And I'm like, oh, Pride by U2, you know? So, like, I play that, you know? And then, like, um, trying to think what other song I, I played. But, I was, oh, I played Born in the USA because at that time, there was all that, like, thing with, like, you know, uh, Trump trying to get him, you know, the birther thing, saying he wasn't born in the United States. Okay, yeah. You know, so I played that. Still not there yet. I'm like, shit, you know? Like, what am I going to do? And so I 
think I can't re- I think I was like I played another USA song. I wish I would have played America by a Team America. Fuck yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think I played another USA song or something. Or maybe Born in the USA was the song I played at, for the last thing. And then he finally showed up. And then they came up and got me. I got on stage, sang "Happy Birthday to the President," which was just so surreal. And the, and I'm sitting next to you know like the OK Go guys who I knew. Um, and so then we go backstage, and I'm just sitting in a room with Herbie Hancock, Jennifer Hudson, and OK Go, and it's like the size of like a bedroom, you know. Mm. And uh, I just, I'm sitting right next to Herbie Hancock, so I just start talking to him. I'm like, dude, I still have the Rocket 12 inch. I yeah. remember getting that as a kid. Like, oh, that's so <laughs> He's great. He's like, of course you know, this like, kid's going yeah. to talk to me about Rocket. <laughs> rocket, you know. I'm like, but I go, dude, Headhunters I got into in college, fucking so awesome, you know, like, and just like, you know, talking to music with him, talking with the OK Go guys, uh, OK Go guys, you know, um, that I knew because they were a Chicago band mm-hmm. or used to be and then, you know, moved to LA. But, um, and then the president comes in. And he gives like Herbie like a bro hug and you know, like I'm just like, what is going on? And then he goes up to OK Go and he's like, Hey guys, how's it going? You guys in a bus now? Are you still touring in the van? What's going on? And I'm like, Holy <laughs> shit, the president is down. He knows about touring, you know? Like I'm like, I was just like so blown away. And then I'm like, hey, it's just an honor to meet you. And he's like, Oh, thank you so much for one of the crowd. I heard you out there, you know, blah, blah. So, um, and at that point I'm like, this guy is either the best politician ever or just like a genuine dude, you know, and he's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, believe what you want to believe, but you you know the machine and how it's got to work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah. And and that's, that's how, you know, that's what went down, you know, how I became. Didn't he, didn't he send out a shout out to you? Didn't he go, yeah, so, I want to yeah, give a shout out to DJ Greg Corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I sampled that. I have that as my, uh, like, a, uh, like a sample for my DJ sets, you know, when I do it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he, he gave me a shout out. And it's so weird, like, hearing, first off, a president say the words DJ and then my name after it. It was like, what the fuck? You know? And um, after that, from doing that event, the company, the production company loved me because I knew like where to look, how a live show's run. Like they didn't have to like translate to me. I'm not some DJ with a huge ego. Right. I came from the band world, you know? So they're like, they hired me for this uh, Michelle Obama, you know, uh, first lady uh, Michelle Obama for a fundraiser for her. Oh. So I, DJ- I wound up DJing for her like a few months later um, and did an event with her, got to meet her. Um, and then um, the Clinton Foundation, they needed me for DJ and this production company was also doing that. So they hired me for that event and I wound up meeting president Clinton. And, um, I remember like I was talking to the secret service guys and they found out I was in Kilana. They're like, my wife loves your band. You know, like, can we get a picture with you <laughs> and like everything? And then, uh, the secret service guys wind up taking a picture of me and president Clinton on my phone. And this is like, you know, 2012. And uh, it's all blurry and shit, you know? Right. So that's the, that's the only picture I have with President Clinton. Um, but then I started doing all these corporate parties after that. I got, I got flown to um, uh, Red Rocks um, or uh, Colorado, and I did a whole weekend out there for some, like, investment banking company. They rented out Red Rocks, and I got to play Red Rocks for the first time as a DJ. As a DJ. And I, and I opened up for Kelly Clarkson, and it was just a private show for their people, like, at Red Rocks, for, and Kelly Clarkson was the headliner. So it paid off. Yeah, yeah. The Obama gig I, pays off. The Obama, yeah, that's one thing. You don't get paid for that, but you get so much more out of it. Yeah, it's know? like going so, on tour with uh, 
stuntable pilots. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a cool story. <laughs> cool story, bro. I mean, it's just weird that, you know, especially if you saw a picture of me in like 2004 with makeup on and my flock of seagulls hair. And you're like, that's the dude that's going to open DJ for President Obama yeah. in 2012. Like, no fucking way. Well, I mean, you had people vouching for you and, you know. Yeah. And he's a big flock of seagulls fan. You know. I mean, you've got, you've made, you've made a lot of like, you've, like, you've made a lot of connects in this city and you were very much a part of this scene and you're very much somebody that people know and and they get along with you and, you know, everyone likes you. You're a good guy. It does, it's not, to me, it's not that crazy that you would have gotten that gig. It makes all the sense in the world to me. Well, yeah, but also at the same time, like, you know, I'm just saying, you know, me in 2006, not even really being a real DJ yet um, and doing what I'm doing and looking the way I am to, you know, DJing for a president would not be um, at that time, especially. Right. Well, they're like, saying your daddy's time, president. Yeah, exactly. Right. It was right. that was at that time it was George Bush, you know, so it's right. like and before that was Clinton, which was kind of like a cool DJ, I guess, like the but coolest he, one we yeah. had since Kennedy, you but know, like, but, <laughs> right. you know, so it, it's like, you know, like, I, I don't know. Um, I, I didn't think, you know, just DJs being part of uh, a, even a fundraiser is just would be foreign to me at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Things have changed. Yeah. Things definitely. have changed since uh, since uh, Clinton and and uh, slowly. Fluid very, very slowly. <laughs> Greg, important yes. question here as a yeah. as a former film major and. Uh, uh, Chicago guy and John Hughes guy. Ferris Bueller, cool dude or pampered douche? Um, hmm. Uh, as uh, a movie watcher, a fucking cool dude. Um, no. And then looking back at the time, you're like, oh yeah, this kind of, like, this is a white privilege dude. But you know what? Like, whatever. Like, you can't look back at those movies and judge them, I feel like, because it's just like, it was just a different time, you know? Like, it's just, it, you, you kind of, they should be time capsules, you know? Um, and I, I don't think they should be um, scrutinized, you know? I mean, look at the stuff that Mel Brooks, you know, has said in, in a lot of his, you know, old movies and stuff. Still holds sure. up 100%. Yeah, 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 right? Like, amazing. No, I don't know what you're talking about. It's great. <laughs> In fact, we should um, go back to being more like Mel Brooks in the 70s. Right? Yeah, true. I'm not well, kidding. Like, I'm absolutely well, yeah, not kidding. I'm, I'm I mean, serious. Yeah, yeah. Because there, there's, like, it's so obvious, you know? Like, I mean, just watching Blazing Saddles, you're like, oh, my God, you know? But it's like, that's the that's the truth, though. Richard you know? Pryor like, co-wrote it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's just, I, I, you know, even Fast Times, like watching a movie like Fast Times, right? There's, like there's no way that movie would get made today. Like it, it, it's still like, it's so weird. That movie came out in 82. Yeah, but I Fast think. Times is more honest than, uh, than Ferris Bueller. Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. 100%. I mean, the things that you, 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 that you would think are offensive in Fast Times are actually really, really honest. Yeah. And it's not they're, really they're, that offensive at all. Yeah. They're real stories, you know? Um, and it, it's, it's, but like getting that movie made today would probably be next to impossible. I don't know. Have you seen Diary, Diary of uh, what's that movie that came out a c- couple of years ago? No, 
diary of a uh, mad housewife. No, fuck off. Are you going to help me or are you just going to keep doing this? I don't know what you're talking about. With uh, Belle Polly. And she has she has sex with her mom's boyfriend. And it, it's... it's Oh, uh, Lady Bird? Diary of a Teenage Girl is what it's oh, called. Oh, Diary of a Teenage Girl. Diary of a Teenage Girl. I, I, it's pretty edgy stuff. I mean, okay, I, 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 just I haven't think seen this, that. I haven't seen that. This idea that it could never happen again is... Come on. Well, no, it, sh- it should happen again. I'm and saying. it does. But, but, you know, like... It will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you you can't disagree with me that movies are way more conservative now than they were in the '80s. Which is a really weird thing to say because yeah. people didn't think movies could get any more conservative than they were in the '80s. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know. All right, Craig. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One I feel like thing. I was just I feel like yeah, I was just yeah. blabbing the whole time, and I didn't even get to talk to you know the rest of the guys. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. What do you? What Gabe do you got, wants ben? to know. You got one song. You got to pick one of these bands to put into your set tonight. Replacements or Iron Maiden? <laughs> Ooh, I'm going to the replacements. <laughs> Thank you. I, I love I I love the replacements. Come on, Gabe. What do you got? But I did I did go see Iron Maiden like in 2019, and they were fucking Gabe, great. Gabe's like, there we go. So good. Is that so one we went to where they had the full. Uh, Airplane above them? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, we were all there. That was yeah. an awesome show. That, it was awesome. It was awesome. I, I haven't seen them since the, probably the No Prayer for the Dying tour, and which was like in 91 or 92 or something. No, I think it was 90, maybe. Um, and I'm so glad that they're still, like, have the old school, like, theatrics. Yeah. It's not just all, like, the, the digital screen and stuff. They use that, but they had, like, all the physical stuff, which I think is just awesome. You know? Right, they're the practical effects. <laughs> when he came out with the dual wielding flamethrowers, I was like, "Holy shit! <laughs> yeah. This is the best thing ever." That they're is really back. great. They're coming back, twenty twenty two. They're supposed to be touring again. Yeah, it's the same. I think it's the same show too. Well, they have the new album. They're going to play some stuff from the new album. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. But I think that theatrical shit will probably be the same because I think it's yeah. called the same tour. So. Yeah, it's still the legacy of the beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of thing, but yeah, worth every penny. Cool. Go see it if you if you didn't see it. Go see it. Or go see it again. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. What's your top three, Gabe? What's what's your go-tos? Well, Iron Maiden is probably number one. The Misfits okay. with Danzig, number two. Okay, okay. <laughs> and uh, I've been big. I've been big into 70 Scorpions right now. Oh, my God. Oh, shit. 70 Scorpions. Forget Dude, it. I cannot believe they're going to tour next year. I can't believe it. I can't believe they're going to tour. And they're like, are they 80? They like, how be old there. are they? They were playing in the 60s. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Yeah, seventy scorpions is, is is a special animal though. It's a different animal than eighty yes. scorpions. It's incredible. I found a video clip from them in seventy seven in Sweden somewhere, and it was just balls to the wall rock, cock block. You know, it was just it's it was. I don't it's know. so I don't weird. Was, the music is rock. so it weird. Cock rock. It was cock block. It was good. You said it right. Well, I know. But <laughs> you look. You It's not more cock rock than it was in the eighties. Yeah, but. Just Yuli John Roth on guitar. He's like doing stuff with that guitar that should be outlawed. In, I in remember <laughs> when I had front row for them in 91, I think. Uh-huh. I was like, those guys are fucking old. Like seeing them close up. I was like, whoa. Yeah. You know, like I, I think whatchamacallit was wearing a hairpiece. Uh, the singer, Klaus, you know, Klaus Meine. Yeah, Klaus, yeah. And that Listen, was ninety. If that's that was ninety one. It's the worst hairpiece of all time. That's not a hairpiece. That's Klaus's his hat. His hat is a hairpiece. Yeah, yeah. It was his hat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No. Um, so I mean, yeah. Like I just I can't even imagine what they'd look like thirty years after that. The same. 
Rudy they look exactly looks great. Rudy looks great. He looks really? like he's 40 in that I 70. Mean, That'd be cool I mean, if they brought Uli out for, for a couple of songs. Yeah, it would be. Well, I like, mean, look at, like, Def Leppard still looks fucking great, too. Like, and those guys are, you know, not as old as Scorpions, but, you know. That one dude, what's his name? Phil Collins? Is it Phil, Phil Collins? Collin. Guitar player? Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Okay. Phil Collins, yeah. He still wears, like, no shirt. Those are implants. <laughs> those are chest implants. And no way. Yes. No way. Yes, they are. Oh, my God. How do you it, implant uh, a chest to make it look flat? Scott's just jealous. He's making up rumors. Now. No, <laughs> no. It, it doesn't look flat. He's like all like, like this. How do you implant a ch- uh, chest? In, what, what are you talking about? I'm doing the meet and greet then. I'm paying for the meet and greet. I'm going to grab those tits. You should. <laughs> They're rock hard for a reason. And then, and then I'll come back on the podcast. I, I, I think the, the abs truth. are implants, too. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> Google it. All the truth is in Google. He's all he's all oiled up and slathered down. Would you go to? Is Justine making you go to that show? By the way, what show? The Motley Crue, uh, Def Leppard, Poison, Joan Jett. Listen, nobody makes me go to any show. <laughs> I went I'm to go see Baby in a Corner. Yeah, I went to go see Def Leppard. Uh, shit, like it was a yeah with Journey, right? Yeah, with Journey. I think I saw. Yeah, I, th- I saw you at that show. That was great. It was Def great. Leppard was awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. It's terrific. Yeah, I've, ne- I've never seen so many cougars in one place. <laughs> yeah. It was unbelievable. Well, well, you know, going back to my story of the first show I ever went to, right, was Poison and Rat, uh-huh. and I remember sitting in the lawn and remember I remember half of the girls that you saw there that. Oh, night. dude, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like, what's that over there? And it was this area by the fence that all these girls in white spandex were all like around. I'm like, what is that? And I asked my friend's older sister that took us and she's like, oh, that's the backstage entrance. And I'm uh-huh. like, whoa. You said, I'm <laughs> going to be in a band. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be in a band. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was just like, that was like no joke back then. Like it was ridiculous. Yeah, they ruled the scene. They ruled the night. I mean, what was from you touring in the early 90s was that still carried over from the 80s you think because i barely I saw so. any I mean, of that i think all those people were still into motley Crue and yeah, Def yeah, Leppard. Yeah, yeah. you know i mean that, but you, you that don't think never ended. like the the next generation you know of the girls in high school in 1992 um no they were all that, at, they were all at kill hannah shows <laughs> no no they were too old for that <laughs> all right dude all right. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. I'm, 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 I hope uh, it was entertaining for everyone listening. I know I was rambling about shit. And I'm, if you know me, you've probably heard these stories a million times before. It's so. fine. We'll cut all of it out. It's yeah, you cut it all out. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. we gonna, it'll be Ferris Bueller and then uh, <laughs> Scott's favorite. I am yeah. actually, I am thinking about doing that, um, uh, putting that band together again, the Shermer High School band. Yeah. Uh, okay. Around Valentine's Day and playing a show with all John Hughes music. All right. Um, so, yeah, I'm thinking about doing that again. I know Blake, uh, you know, Blake Smith, well, I told him about it. He's like, I'm on. I'm into it. Let's do it. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and then he'll fuck up and then he'll walk around <laughs> ready to put a gun to his head. When did I do that? Oh, uh, no, that's me. I, no, still, no, I, still, both, I still owe him I still owe him a show from the, the train wreck that we did on Halloween like so many years ago. No, he felt the same way. He was like, oh, but that, he was that, like was the, that was all my fault, though. I don't know if that was all your fault. <laughs> I, 
I mean, it was pretty bad. That was definitely the worst show I ever played. So, so, so sorry you had to be part of that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, thankfully, it was just a, a drunken night at Debonair for all of us. But, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, that was definitely, definitely the. I, I remember calling the rest of my band after that and be like, I'm retiring. I'm never doing another show again unless it's Kill Hannah. Fuck this. <laughs> yeah, I remember you saying that. I'm not playing any more shows. Yeah. I'm like, fuck this. And then it cut to me this year. I'm like, you know what? I haven't played in a while. Like, it'd be cool to, like, put together something fun, you know, with all our friends. Yeah. So you'll you'll definitely get the call. All right. I'm in. Yeah. All right. To Chicago, motherfucker at the top of the Sears Tower. A tongue kissed a coke fiend at the after hours. And shit turned up the radio. Said, let's get out of control. I wanna blow shit up. Motherfucker, I ran after you Cause later we might be dead This fucking shot I think went straight to my head This isn't Moscow This isn't Tokyo We are invincible now 